Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 205th episode of the Nauticast, titled Heroes, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Daenerys V, in which Danny and her followers arrive at Marine and win an initial victory, only for everything to go wrong inside their own camp. Uh, no big deal. I imagine Danny will wrap things up pretty quickly in Marine and get her ass on over to Westeros. Right? <laughs> right? At least, she'll, at least she'll have a lot of time to deal with all the problems that come up in this chapter. She will have all the time in the world. So, our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. So normally we answer a question up top in the episode asked by one of our patrons, but right now we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel for questions, so if you are a member of our Sworn Sword $10 a month or higher tier, one of your benefits is to ask us questions we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast, so you can go ahead on and send in any questions you have. You can send them in via email to nauticastasoif at gmail.com. You can drop it in a Patreon post or hit us up on social media. Send us in any questions on, on topics you're interested in about the episodes we're doing, and if you haven't checked out our patreon great time to do it go head over to patreon.com slash not a cast asoiaf and like i said sworn sword or higher tiers get the chance to ask us questions and yeah within reason if you're willing to ask us something maybe outside of or tangent to a song of ice and fire perhaps about mine or emmett's personal interests or commentary on some other pop culture um <laughs> if we're familiar we're happy to weigh in on that as well <laughs> absolutely so, that aside, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis for this episode's chapter, A Storm of Swords, Daenerys V. Meereen was as large as Astapor and Yunkai combined. Like her sister cities, she was built of brick, but where Astapor had been red and Yunkai yellow, Meereen was made with bricks of many colors. Her walls were higher than Yunkai's, and in better repair, studded with bastions and anchored by great defensive towers at every angle. Behind them, huge against the sky, could be seen the top of the Great Pyramid, a monstrous thing 800 feet tall with a towering bronze harpy at the top. Starting to feel like this is the important city in Slaver's Bay. It's almost like we're about to spend a whole book here. Dario mocks the harpy as a craven with a woman's heart. Not the wisest thing to say right in front of Danny, the woman currently knocking over cities like dominoes. Regardless, one Miranese hero, hero? Sure, let's go with that, is not craven. He rides out the gates wearing the fanciest armor this side of Lord Asshole Florent, bearing the biggest dick lance on Planetos, and styling his hair into two great horns that would make Loki blush. He rides in circles yelling, Debate me! at Danny's camp. Danny's bloodriders are all ready to go feed the troll, but she tells them to mute, block, and move on, because she needs them to lead what little cavalry she has. Jorah says she made the right call. That one asshole can't do them any damage. Guess who disagrees? Barristan Sel- I'm sorry, Arston Whitebeard. Thank the gods that that's almost done. Anywho, old Ben Kenobi says that morale matters at war, and the Miranese hero is ramping up his side at the expense of theirs. Jorah points out that if their champion lost, that would be even worse for morale. Barristan calls him dishonorable, yada yada yada, you know how this goes. Danny agrees with me and cuts them off. She's got bigger troubles than one lone asshole. Just like with Astapor, thousands of former slaves have followed her from Yunkai, and the so-called Great Masters of Marine have burnt all the food in the area. But they didn't stop there. They had nailed a slave child up on every milepost along the coast road from Yunkai, nailed them up still living, with their entrails hanging out, and one arm always outstretched, 
to point the way to Marine. Leading her van, Dario had given orders for the children to be taken down before Danny had to see them, but she had countermanded him as soon as she was told. I will see them, she said. I will see everyone and count them and look upon their faces, and I will remember. By the time they came to Marine, sitting on the salt coast beside her river, the count stood at 163. 163, keep that number in mind. Speaking of the assholes who run this place, the champion of Marine is still out there making fun of all our heroes and their mothers and their gods and their tiny dicks. He finally gets a name, Osnak Zopal, identified as such by Brown Ben Plum, the new leader of the Second Sons since Miro went missing. Remember Miro? Yeah, don't bother, he won't come up again. Ben says he knew a man with the delightful name of Scarb until Osnak Zopal killed Scarb for the unforgivable crime of looking at a Miranese woman. I love that we're halfway around the world from Westeros, but we just can't get away from guys who think chivalry equals murder. Regardless, Osnak is well-connected, so Ben had to run for his life lest he end up like Scarb. Not Scarb! Oh, we hardly knew ye. Meanwhile, Osnak is pissing in their general direction. Dario offers to castrate him for Danny, but she doesn't want his baby carrot, she wants the city. As other Miranese on the walls join in on their champion's golden storm, Danny realizes that Barristan, sorry, Arston, had a point. If she lets this continue, it will severely weaken morale in her camp. And so she summons a strong Belwas, who's finally going to get to do a thing. They found the huge brown eunuch sitting in the shade of her pavilion, eating a sausage. He finished it in three bites, wiped his greasy hands clean on his trousers, and sent Arston Whitebeard to fetch him his steel. The aged squire honed Belwas's arak every evening and rubbed it down with bright red oil. When Whitebeard brought the sword, strong Belwas squinted down the edge, grunted, slid the blade back into its leather sheath, and tied the sword belt around his vast waist. Arston had brought his shield as well, a round steel disc no larger than a pie plate, which the eunuch grasped with his offhand rather than strapping to his forearm in the manner of Westeros. Fine liver and onions, Whitebeard, Belwas said. Not for now, for after. Killing makes strong Belwas hungry. He did not wait for a reply, but lumbered from the olive grove toward Osnaxopal. I wish Strong Bell was got to do more things. He's delightful. You just gotta wait for the poison locusts, I guess. That's the next time he really matters. Danny's blood riders wonder why she sent Bellwas instead of one of them. Well, turns out her logic is sound. Unlike her other potential champions, Bellwas doesn't actually do anything useful for Danny besides fight. So if he dies, she won't have lost all that much. And if he wins, it'll be a blow to the Miranese to watch their champion killed by one of their former slaves. Osnak sees Bellwas coming, tucks his dick away, remounts his horse, and charges. Danny suddenly realizes that Belwas has no armor, but Jorah says armor would only slow Belwas down because he's not used to it. No armor in the slave pits, after all, that would only get in the way of the blood sport. Like any good athlete playing an away game, Belwas ignores the jeers of the home crowd and focuses on his opponent. At the last possible second, he dodges, not even bothering to attack Osnak as he rides past. What is he doing? Danny demanded. Giving the mob a show, Sir Jorah said. I love a good show. Overture, curtains, lights. <laughs> I love the bit in Seinfeld where Jerry sings that and Elaine says, it's so sad. All your knowledge of high culture comes from Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Same. Osnak charges again, but Belwas dodges again, this time knocking the lance aside like a mosquito. Danny can hear Belwas laughing as Osnak is once again forced to circle back around. Jorah says Osnak should stop trying to kill Belwas with the lance and just trample him. And when Osnak charges again, Danny sees what Jorah's talking about. Osnak is riding past Belwas, like this is a joust. To Osnak's credit, the one and only time I'll say that, he shakes up his strategy here by shifting his lance to catch Belwas dodging. But this time Belwas drops straight down, rolls closer to Osnak, and takes out Osnak's horse at the legs with his arak. 
The home crowd goes quiet and Danny's awake crowd cheers, as Osnak leaps off his dying horse and meets Belwas blade to blade. The fight only lasts a few seconds before Belwas kills and beheads Osnak Zopal. So much for the hero of Marine, said Dario, laughing. A victory without meaning, Sir Jorah cautioned. We will not win Marine by killing its defenders one at a time. No, Danny agreed, but I'm pleased we killed this one. Amen, Khaleesi. Belwas pauses to shit in Marine's direction, wipe himself on Osnak's cloak, <laughs> kill Osnak's horse, and steal Osnak's stuff before returning to Danny's camp. Everyone there cheers and congratulates him in their own way, even the Dothraki who were just making fun of him. Belwas demands liver and onions, his comfort food. Danny sees that Belwas is wounded, and sends for a healer lest she lose her champion like she did Cal Drogo, although she has to neg Belwas for a while before he'll accept treatment. That job done, Danny calls a meeting with her various counselors. I must have this city, she told them, sitting cross-legged on a pile of cushions, her dragons all about her. Eerie and Jiqui poured wine. Her granaries are full to bursting. There are figs and dates and olives growing on the terraces of her pyramids, and casks of salt fish and smoked meat buried in her cellars. And fat chests of gold, silver, and gemstones as well, Daria reminded them. Let us not forget the gemstones. Well, someone's priorities are in place. Don't worry, Dario, we can never forget the gemstones, righteous and otherwise. Sadly, Jorah shoots down all of Danny's ideas as to how they might actually gain entrance to Marine. They don't have enough ships to attack from the river, they don't have enough trees to build siege equipment, and they don't have enough food to successfully besiege the city in the first place. Moreover, sickness is starting to spread among the freedmen. Jorah, unrepentant slaver Mormont, has a plan that will surprise no one. Abandon the freedmen to starve, and make for Westeros. Better late than never. After all, by the time they get there, her dragons will be big enough to make siege warfare moot. Danny doesn't want to face defeat, but her blood riders told her that the Miranese have basically defeated themselves by being so cowardly, and she should find some braver opponents. Plenty of those waiting in Westeros. Danny can't accept any plan that involves abandoning the freedmen, not to mention failing to punish the great masters for all the children they killed. Brown Ben Plum reluctantly brings up another way into Marine, the city's Byzantine sewer system, which he used to escape back when the late Osnak Sopal killed our best friend Scarb. Like most sewers, it's dark and gross in there, and Ben himself will never go back in. As he says, there are old swords and bold swords, but there are no old bold swords. Danny says it sounds too risky, but I guess that's that, moving right along. Danny dismisses her counselors so she can think in private. On Ben's way out, Viserion jumps on him, smacks him in the face, screams for no reason, and jumps off again. That means he likes you, Danny says. That sounds less like a dragon and more like a cat to me. That is some orange cat behavior right there. Ben gives the credit to his Targaryen blood. Danny knew that Ben is a walking melting pot with ancestors from all over the world, but she had no idea that included her own family. She gave him a searching look and said, How could that be? Well, said Brown Ben, there was some old plum in the Sunset Kingdoms who had a dragon princess. My grandmama told me the tale. He lived in King Aegon's day. Which King Aegon? Danny asked. Five Aegons have ruled in Westeros. Her brother's son would have been the sixth, but the usurper's men had dashed his head against a wall. Five were there? Well, that's confusion. I could not give you a number, my queen. This old plum was a lord, though. Must have been a famous fellow in his day, the talk of all the land. Thing was, begging your royal pardon, he had himself a cock six foot long. The three bells in Danny's braid tinkled when she left. You mean inches, I think. Feet, Brown Bed said firmly. If it was inches, who'd want to talk about it now? Uh, your grace. Danny giggled like a little girl. Did your grandmother claim she'd actually seen this prodigy? That the old crone never did. She was half Ebenese and half Kohoric, never been to Westeros. My grandfather must have told her. Some Dothraki killed him before I was born. And where did your grandfather's knowledge come from? One of them tales told at the teat, I guess. 
Brown Ben shrugged. That's all I know about Aegon the Unnumbered, or old Lord Plum's mighty manhood, I fear. I best see to my sons. Go do that, Danny told him. More on this later. For now, let's just enjoy one of the most elaborate of George's many, many dick jokes. Danny is left alone with her cats, I mean her dragons, and thinks about what Jorah said about riding them into battle. The problem is there's only one of her and three of them, so who will ride the other two? Her thoughts, among other things, dwell on Dario Naharis, who has been flirting with her all the way to Marine, bringing her flowers, making her laugh, that's more than she can say for stick in the mud Jorah. Danny imagines kissing Dario, knowing that he is a violent and dangerous man, but hey, same was true of Cal Drogo. Danny's got a type. Euron is taking notes, uh, if only Quentin had. Danny considers marrying both Jorah and Dario just to shut them up. But all that will have to wait until she takes Marine. Danny feels claustrophobic in her tent and decides to visit the Freedmen camp, taking Missandei and Barristan. I mean, Arston Whitebeard. Whew, we're almost done. When the horses had been saddled, Danny and her companions set out along the shoreline, away from the city. Even so, she could feel Marine at her back, mocking her. When she looked over one shoulder, there it stood, the afternoon sun blazing off the bronze harpy atop the Great Pyramid. Inside Marine, the slavers would soon be reclining in their fringed tokars to feast on lamb and olives, unborn puppies, honey dormice, and other such delicacies, whilst outside, her children went hungry. A sudden wild anger filled her. I will bring you down, she swore. Damn right, Danny. Redistribute the honey dormice. Unborn puppies for all. Danny and her companions pass by the unsullied camp, where Grey Worm is running drills. She sees her ships out at sea the three ships she renamed for Aegon the Conqueror's dragons, despite the technicality that Illyrio owns those ships. I wouldn't worry, Danny, those ships won't last much longer. As at Yunkai, the Freedmen camp is much larger and messier than the Unsullied camp. The Freedmen come to greet her, some blessing her, some asking her for blessings, some just trying to touch her for good luck. Danny had stopped to speak to a pregnant woman who wanted the mother of dragons to name her baby when someone reached up and grabbed her left wrist. Turning, she glimpsed a tall, ragged man with a shaved head and a sunburnt face. Not so hard, she started to say, but before she could finish, he had yanked her bodily from the saddle. The ground came up and knocked the breath from her, as her silver whinnied and backed away. Stunned, Danny rolled to her side and pushed herself onto one elbow, and then she saw the sword. There's the treacherous sow, he said. I knew you'd come to get your feet kissed one day. His head was bald as a melon, his nose red and peeling. But she knew that voice, and those pale green eyes. I'm going to start by cutting off your teats. Danny was dimly aware of Miss Andi shouting for help. A freedman edged forward, but only a step. One quick slash, and he was on his knees, blood running down his face. Miro wiped his sword on his breeches. Who's next? I am. Arston Whitebeard leapt from his horse and stood over her, the salt wind riffling through his snowy hair, both hands on his tall, hardwood staff. Grandfather... Miro said, run off before I break your stick in two and bugger you with... The old man fainted with one end of the staff, pulled it back, and whipped the other end about faster than Danny would have believed. The titan's bastard staggered back into the surf, spitting blood and broken teeth from the ruin of his mouth. Whitebeard put Danny behind him. Miro slashed at his face. The old man jerked back, cat quick. The staff thumped Miro's ribs, sending him reeling. Arston splashed sideways, parried a looping cut, danced away from a second, checked a third mid-swing... The moves were so fast she could hardly follow. Missandei was pulling Danny to her feet when she heard a crack. She thought Arston's staff had snapped until she saw the jagged bone jutting from Miro's calf. As he fell, the titan's bastard twisted and lunged, sending his point straight at the old man's chest. 
Whitebeard swept the blade aside almost contemptuously and smashed the other end of his staff against the big man's temple. Miro went sprawling, blood bubbling from his mouth as the waves washed over him. A moment later, the freedmen washed over him too, knives and stones and angry fists rising and falling in a frenzy. Woohoo! Exciting shit. Two duels in one chapter? Too kind, George. You shouldn't have. Danny feels sick, suddenly paranoid at the thought of enemies all around her. Arston Whitebeard, totally still a humble squire, apologizes for letting Miro get so close. He escorts her back to her tent. She summons Jorah and castigates him for not telling her that Miro was still on the loose, before revealing that Arston took down the former sellsword captain like he was made of balsa wood and Elmer's glue. Sir Jorah gave the old man a long look. A squire with a stick slew Miro of Bravos. Is that the way of it? A stick, Danny confirmed, but no longer a squire. Sir Jorah, it's my wish that Arston be knighted. No. The loud refusal was surprise enough. Stranger still, it came from both men at once. Sir Jorah drew his sword. The Titan's bastard was a nasty piece of work, and good at killing. Who are you, old man? A better knight than you, sir, Arston said coldly. Knight? Danny was confused. You said you were a squire. I was, your grace. He dropped to one knee. I squired for Lord Swan in my youth, and at Magister Valerio's behest I have served strong Belwas as well. But during the years in between, I was a knight in Westeros. I have told you no lies, my queen. If there are truths I have withheld, and for that and all my other sins I can only beg your forgiveness. What truths have you withheld? Danny did not like this. You will tell me, now. He bowed his head. At Carth, when you asked me my name, I said I was called Arston. That much was true. Many men had called me by that name when Belwas and I were making our way east to find you. But it is not my true name. She was more confused than angry. He has played me false, just as Jorah warned me. Yet he saved my life just now. Sir Jorah flushed red. Miro shaved his beard, but you grew one, didn't you? No wonder you look so bloody familiar. You know him? Danny asked the exile knight, lost. I saw him perhaps a dozen times, from afar most often, standing with his brothers or riding in some tourney. But every man in the Seven Kingdoms knew Barristan the Bold. He laid the point of his sword against the old man's neck. Khaleesi, before you kneel, Sir Barristan, sell me. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, who betrayed your house to serve the usurper Robert Baratheon. Woohoo! I don't have to call him Arston Whitebeard ever again. Danny wants to know why Barristan is here, doing stuff like saving her life, if he actually serves the Baratheon regime that displaced her family. Barristan's eyes fill with tears as he confesses that he not only served Robert, but that he would still be serving Joffrey if the Lannisters hadn't kicked him out of the Kingsguard. Jorah is ready to execute the old man on the spot, but Danny orders him to let Barristan speak. Your Grace, I am sorry I misled you. It was the only way to keep the Lannisters from learning I had joined you. You are watched, as your brother was. Lord Varys reported every move Viserys made for years. Whilst I sat on the small council, I heard a hundred such reports. And since the day you wed Khal Drogo, there has been an informer by your side selling your secrets, trading whispers to the spider for gold and promises. He cannot mean. You are mistaken. Danny looked at Jorah Mormont. Tell him he's mistaken. There's no informer. Sir Jorah, tell him. We crossed the Dothraki Sea together and the Red Waste. Her heart fluttered like a bird in a trap. Tell him, Jorah. Tell him how we got it wrong. The others take you, sell me. Sir Jorah flung his longsword to the carpet. Khaleesi, it was only at the start, before I came to know you. Before I came to love, do not say that word. She backed away from him. How could you? What did the usurper promise you? Gold? Was it gold? The Undying had said she would be betrayed twice more, once for gold and once for love. Tell me what you were promised. 
Varus said, I might go home. He bowed his head. I was going to take you home. Her dragon sensed her fury. Viserion roared and smoke rose gray from his snout. Drogon beat the air with black wings and Rhaegal twisted his head back and belched flame. I should say the word and burn the two of them. Was there no one she could trust, no one to keep her safe? Are all the knights of Westeros so false as you two? Get out before my dragons roast you both. What does roast liar smell like, as foul as Brown Ben's sewers? Go! Sir Barristan rose stiff and slow. For the first time, he looked his age. Where shall we go, your grace? To hell to serve King Robert! Danny felt hot tears on her cheeks. Drogon screamed, lashing his tail back and forth. The others can have you both. Go. Go away forever. Both of you. The next time I see your faces, I'll have your traitor's heads off. She could not say the words, though. They betrayed me. But they saved me. But they lied. You go, my bear, my fierce strong bear. What will I do without him? And the old man, my brother's friend. You go, go, where? And then she knew. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys Five. What'd you think of this one, sir? Whew, this is a big one. Marine, huh? The nod in the middle of George's story, holding together half a dozen plot threads and a setting where the bulk of Daenerys' army and supporting cast will remain through the next several books. 163 Crimes Against Humanity lead the way to war as a performance and then war as a strategy, all underpinned by a rising fire in Danny's political agenda and revelations about her closest advisors. And most, most important of all, we no longer have to say Arston fucking Whitebeard anymore. <laughs> it's finally over our long national nightmare. So Danny's best chapter in this book is obviously the Dracarys one, but honestly, this is a close second. There's so much going on here, just an embarrassment of riches. These are some of my favorite scenes in Danny's story. Belwas versus Osnak, Barristan versus Miro, the whole ending reveal. It's one of those chapters where I really remember my first time through it, just turning the pages faster and faster. I like her slow burn chapters in A Dance with Dragons more, I think, than most people, but I can't blame anyone for missing the sheer excitement of this one. Marine rises up to greet the readers in this chapter's outset a massive city that dwarfs Astapor and Yunkai combined. And while those cities favored a more monochromatic hue, red and yellow respectively, Marine is many-colored in its bricks, making even Saruman jealous. I know why they didn't do that in the movies, in the Lord of the Rings <laughs> movies, because it would have looked silly, but I always loved that Saruman announces his big supervillain plan and this just eyesore lava lamp rainbow robe, and Gandalf <laughs> is just like, yeah, 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 world domination. Can we circle back to the robe, though? Because that is tasteless. <laughs> The color symbolism here is clearly important for George. He lingers on it with all three cities of Slaver's Bay. In Astapor, the red color scheme explicitly represented blood. Barristan had that, that little eerie song he sung, Bricks and Blood Built Astapor and Bricks and Blood Her People. In Yunkai, we talked about how the yellow stood in for gold and also represented the master's cowardice, both of which we'll see more of in A Dance with Dragons. They have a lot of money and they're going to use it to make sure everyone else has to fight but them. So, okay, we've got the red city, we've got the yellow city, so you might expect Marine to be blue or green or puce, but instead it's all of them at once. And right away, that lets you know, this is going to be a more complicated and more ambiguous setting. It's not going to be as easy to define, nor is it going to be as easy to conquer. The color scheme ties right into the size and strength of the place. George using every descriptive tool he's got to let you know, this is the final boss of Slaver's Bay. You immediately get a strong sense of the place, even before we go inside. Located at the mouth of the Skahazadan, Marine is noted for its high walls, great defensive towers, and giant stepped pyramids, including the Great Pyramid, which stands 800 feet tall with a great bronze harpy upon its peak. 
For a reference point, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt stands at about 450 feet high. Many lesser pyramids adorn the Miranese skyline otherwise. We'll get deeper into the peoples, politics, and economics of Marine in future Daenerys episodes, since those things rise in prominence once Danny's quote-unquote conquest is complete. But I do want to circle back to the Egypt comparison for now. Sitting at the mouth of a river in a dry, arid land, Marine's pyramids and harpies are evocative of the kingdoms of ancient Egypt, with Marine's history stretching back as far into Planetos' history as Egypt's does to our own. Just for a sense of timescale, the famous Egyptian queen Cleopatra lived closer to our own time than she did to the building of the Great Pyramids. And indeed, the structures and polities of both are built on the backs of slavery. The lands of the Nile River Delta have always been lush, which is a big part of why it was one of the major cradles of civilization. Its location and propensity for production made it a rich city, and one that was always eyed for conquest, from Alexander the Great to Julius Caesar to the Ottomans and Napoleon Bonaparte. The reasons for taking Egypt in the past, usually focused on the cities of Alexandria and Cairo, vary by ruler and are layered on top of complex political contexts. Napoleon, for example, was trying to break British hegemony in the area, as the Brits were busy working on a project that would shorten the trip between motherland and its key colony, India, a project that would eventually realize itself as the Suez Canal. But there also persists something individually glorious about Egyptian conquest, its seemingly eternal history and seemingly infinite source of wealth in an orientalized worldview makes for a compelling prize. I was listening to a roundtable of scholars on the Age of Napoleon podcast talk about Napoleon's campaign into Syria and Egypt, known famously as the Army of the Orient, a famous quagmire for the otherwise off-victorious Napoleon, a military project with mixed results at the very best. But one of the guests said something that stuck with me about how Napoleon was always trying to follow in the footsteps of his idols, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you go to Rome, you go to wherever to become a king, a conqueror, an emperor, but you go to Egypt to become a god. And I think about this now in relation to Daenerys, who was hoisted on the shoulders of the freedmen she'd made in Yunkai and praised as their mother. No doubt, Daenerys' story has always been couched in saviorism and destiny, and I'm not saying she's rolling up on Marine with a full-on god complex. But her political project to end slavery now takes on a divine, holy component, and her later decision to stay and rule in Marine is an effort to put her stamp on perhaps the oldest kingdom still standing on Planetos. Later in the chapter, she'll talk about how she gave her ships and dragons the name of Valyrian gods, giving even more weight to Daenerys seeing herself as a messianic figure. We'll keep an eye on the Napoleon parallel as well, as he'd eventually have to abandon his quagmire in the Near East to head back home, beginning his rise to Emperor of France, a trajectory Danny hopes to emulate herself, other than the whole being French part. <laughs> but to rule in Marine, Danny must take Marine. First of her challenges is a contest of champions. No, not the 1975 Marvel comic series mashing your favorite action heroes together, or the much worse mobile phone game with the same name. Rather, a ceremonial duel put on to entertain the masses, to cheering crowds. It's the military entertainment complex, where the martial world and cultural entertainment start to blur together and reinforce each other. We see it in our own real world, whether it's military recruiters using games like Call of Duty or the Department of Defense providing funding and resources for Hollywood blockbusters. Marine's champion, or hero as Danny calls him, is ordained like a peacock. Silk streamers and copper scales and hair gelled into horns to make him as colorful as the city itself. A good performance requires good costuming. 
looking at you, non-Andor Star Wars television. (laughs) The champion presents a dilemma for Daenerys. She gains little by the champion's defeat, but the champion's taunts and possible victory do her even less good. And in the off chance that this champion isn't all bluster, she has to pick her own champion in a way that doesn't deplete her joint chiefs of staff. And relative haste is needed. Due to Marine's scorched earth tactics, the land can't sustain the several thousand freedmen following Danny's army, who are reduced to no more than mouths with feet, as Sir Jorah will put it. While poisoning the wells and burning the crops is meant to deprive Danny's army of material needs, the 163 dead children signposted at the mile markers are meant to break her resolve. I'll give Danny this, though. Her desire to see them all hints at a willingness to not be removed from violence done in her name, whether for or against. It's that sort of removal that Ned Stark warned Brandon about, albeit in a different context. It becomes a lot easier to ignore death if you keep it at arm's length, and that is no fit way for a ruler to be. The champion, named Oznak Zopal by Brown Blend Plum, taunts Danny further by pissing in her direction, and the Miranese on the city walls follow suit, literally, literally pissing all over the slaves Daenerys means to free. Can't really get more dehumanizing than that, but I guess any piss taken at the walls is slightly less piss for Barrison and Jorah to crawl through at the chapter's end. <laughs> Maybe? Maybe? Hope so, yeah. Every every inch counts when you're down there. Yeah, they start crawling in there uh, right after the chapter's over, which is interesting. They, they do it in between. In Danny's last chapter, she took down Yunkai. The chapter before that, she took down Astapor. So the first-time reader is going into this chapter expecting that, well, three for three, by the end of this one, Danny will have taken down Marine. But that doesn't happen. George tricks us by shaking up the structure. Danny takes over Marine off screen. By the time her next chapter starts, it's already happened. She's like sitting up on the pyramid and lounging, sitting back, and you're just going, what, what happened? I think part of what George is doing here is toying with the reader's emotions. He makes us hate the Masters of Marine, just as much as we hated the Masters of the other two cities. If anything, the Masters of Marine are worse, because they're clearly smarter than the rest and so can cause more damage. They've gone full Russia against Danny, destroying their own resources in order to deny them to her. The Masters of Yunkai offered the carrot, trying to bribe Danny into going away, but the Masters of Marine are bringing the stick. They're waging war on an ideological level as well as a material one. Danny is a threat, not only because of what she herself does, but because she can inspire others. We're going to see this when we get to Volantis in A Dance with Dragons. This system of slavery runs on fear. There's nothing a slaver fears like a revolt, so he has to turn around and instill that fear in the slaves through the spectacle of hideous violence. That's the message they're sending with all those dead kids, and that message is not only meant for Danny; it's meant for everyone she's freed and everyone she might free. Look at us, we can still do this. Anyone who rises up against us will meet the same fate. We didn't just kill any slaves, no, we killed kids, only because we know that'll hurt you extra. But if they intended that to discourage Danny, it had the opposite effect. It makes her all the more determined to take their city. She wants to feed her people, of course, but she also wants to bring down those murderers. And yet, George doesn't give us the same catharsis he did with Dracarys. Because Marine falls off screen, we can only focus that rage here on one guy, Osnax Opal. And don't get me wrong, he is super hateable. George uses Brown Ben's backstory to let us know that Osnax basically stands in for his entire class. He is a well-connected guy who relies on his connections to protect him while he goes around killing and maiming anyone he wants to. Taking him down is satisfying, but you can't solve Marine on an individual level like that. So both Jorah and Barristan have a point. Jorah is right that Osnak is not worth taking seriously. As we'll see during the duel itself, Osnak doesn't actually have any clue what he's doing. He's all surface appeal. (laughs) 
I actually, I wouldn't be surprised if the Masters of Marines sent him out there for the same reason Danny sends Bell was, because they could afford to lose him. On the other hand, Barristan is right that the surface appeal counts. In the last John chapter, he recalled how Ned told him that what matters most in battle isn't the raw numbers. It's which side holds and which side breaks. Osnak is making it more likely that his side will hold. He's reinforcing the ideological message of those dead slaves. We have nothing to fear from you. And that we is important. Most of the Miranese pissing off the walls in his honor probably aren't slavers themselves. And that's the point. There's a political statement being made, an expression of identity, an expression of we, that is rooted in material concerns but can easily extend beyond them thanks to the power of spectacle. These other Miranese identify with the sight of him. They project power into him. He's becoming a symbol. Which is a strength, but also a weakness, because that makes his death resonate. Those are the consequences of sticking his neck out for everyone to see. The hero does not hide, as George writes. That line stood out to me on reread because there is a hero hiding, right next to Danny, Barristan. I love when he says about Osnaka, a chivalrous man would dismount, the most Barristan <laughs> sentence imaginable. <laughs> Miro is also in disguise, and I wouldn't call him a hero, but same goes for Osnaka, and Miro's name is only one letter off from hero. And of course, Dora Mormont has been hiding all along, never telling Danny about the reports he sent back to Varus, which the reader has known about from the beginning. All of the disguises fall away in this chapter, leaving Danny alone with the truth, though she doesn't get time to reckon with it until her next chapter. And even then, she can't bear to hear the truth about her father from Barristan. Some lies are more powerful than others, and so they last longer. Eventually, Daenerys signals to the bullpen to bring in strong Belwas, Team Danny's closer. All he needs is liver and onions after the bottom of the ninth. Belros proves a canny pick for Danny. Being a veteran of the fighting pits, he understands the performance and audience, while also giving him a chance to prove himself as Danny's servant, not just Illyrio's creature. Of course, little is lost if Belwas fails. He commands no armies and holds no positions in Danny's cabinet. As Danny's retinue grows and she steps into power in Marine, she's going to have to become an expert on delegating, finding the right tools for the appropriate tasks, something we'll see John struggle with at the Wall and Cersei fumble with at King's Landing during Feast Dance. And Belwas is the perfect tool for this task, treating the duel as more of a tourney tilt than actual mortal combat, knowing he needs to give them a show to win the crowd, something akin to Ridley Scott's Gladiator. And he does win the crowd or at least Danny's half of it, despite shitting in front of everyone. But then again, <laughs> you got to make room for those liver and onions. I just made the connection to Danny's last chapter in Dance when she gets diarrhea. That's a much, <laughs> a much less victorious poop is, is, is that, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is a great scene. It's important for Danny's arc, showing off her discerning leadership as she realizes Belwas is the one she can afford to lose, and he's also the one who would most embarrass Marine if he wins. But this is also one of the best scenes in terms of her supporting cast, which I think is lacking a lot of the time. Like, this is the mm -hmm. only big mm -hmm. Belwas scene. I think about how strong John's supporting cast is or Arya's. Danny's, I think, not as much. This is a big exception. It's a triumph for this former slave to overcome one of the slavers, demonstrating that on a literally level playing field, the flat earth right before the gates, the slavers aren't innately superior like they always claim. All of Osnak's boasting and mocking, and even with the advantage of being mounted and armored, he can't overcome Belwas, the kind of person Osnak is used to treating as an object. That's why they have to use spectacular violence to stay in charge. Brown Ben Plum pops up to let us know that Osnak has always operated this way. He cut out a guy's liver, our best friend Scarb, because he looked at the wrong woman. 
The reference point here, I think, maybe just one of many reference points, is Emmett Till, the black teenager who was brutally beaten and killed by white men and rage that he dare look at and talk to a white woman. So many brutal hierarchies like this, whether they're based on race or purely on class, are ultimately motivated by sex on an individual level. Men like Osnack feel sexually insecure about the thought of being replaced. A lot of American racism specifically is founded on white men fearing the supposed sexual superiority of black men. Ironically, the former slave who kills Osnack is a eunuch. No one's ever going to get cucked by strong bellwells. And part of why I think they castrate so many slaves in Slaver's Bay is to avoid that sexual competition. And that's part of why it's so funny that Osnack's big shiny lance keeps getting in his own way. He's got this big old dick, but he can't use it right. I love that Osnack screws up because he's used to play fighting, not the real thing. Unlike Belwas, who has had to fight for his life so many times against so much, so many more threatening opponents, that this is all basically a joke to him. He's laughing before it's halfway over. If Osnack had just ridden right at Belwas, like Joris suggests, this fight would have been over in no time. I like that Danny compares Osnack to a jouster in Westeros, as opposed to the Dothraki, who would really just run Belwas down. She also thinks about the Dothraki when the other Miranese start pissing off the walls, thinking, oh, they'd never do that against a proper Kalasar. While Danny was born in Westeros and wants to return, she doesn't actually know what it's like, as she admits to herself in this chapter. Dothraki culture is what she actually knows from lived experience, so that's her reference point. The reader is more familiar with Westerosi culture than Danny is. Part of what's going on in Slaver's Bay is George confronting Danny with exaggerated, simplified versions of the problems she would encounter in Westeros. Osnak is like a knight. Again, he looks like Marine's own Lord Asshole Florent. Just as Danny and Jorah are watching and interpreting the fight, Sam goes for the Miranese on the walls, and they are the crowd Belwas is playing to, as Jorah points out. Once upon a time, Belwas lived and could have died for their entertainment. Now he's free, and he can show them just what he thinks of them weaponizing their desire for bloodshed against them by killing and then humiliating their champion. I also really like how everyone cheers Belwas in their own way when he goes he gets back to the camp. The unsullied clap with their spears and shields because that's how they show support. Ben Plum gives Belwas a plum because of course he does, that's his brand. Jorah Mormont says, well done, which is an effusive compliment coming from him. He's so gruff <laughs> so much of the time. Well done from Jorah is like a poem from anyone else. Again, Danny's supporting cast doesn't get many chances to shine. I, I love this for being an exception. No, that's a very great point, and that's why this is one of the better Danny chapters, I think. While the contest of champions made for an entertaining first act of the chapter, very little elsewise is settled. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are no materials to build siegecraft, and Marines' defenses, including hot oil fountains and high land and sea walls, will not be easy to undermine or overcome. And we also get hints of the bloody flux running through her camp, which will become a major handicap going forward for Danny's forces. Sir Jorah's advice is to instead finally turn west, despite what fate that leaves the freedmen to. Danny has her army, has picked up a fair amount of valuable advisors, and by the time she reaches the west of Essos, her dragons will be formidable. This is one of those moments that shows Daenerys' political project is multifaceted, not just singularly focused on obtaining the Iron Throne. She feels responsibility for the people following her, which is more noble than 90% of the rulers to work their way in and out of King's Landing. Mm -hmm. This is the dilemma that will be at the core of her adventure in Westeros, win the crown or save the realm. As I mentioned earlier, this chapter introduces Brown Ben Plum, a Westerosi exile of sorts who claims to have the dragon's blood in him, which seems true enough based on his rapport with Danny's dragons. More importantly, he correctly identifies the problem with Westeros. Too many Aegons. 
Please eliminate three. <laughs> P.S. I am not a crackpot. <laughs> He's the one who suggests the sewers to Danny to do that anti Andy Dufresne crawl through a river of shit into prison that is the city of Marine. The Shawshank re-corruption? <laughs> Last time we covered Danny, we both expressed how mixed we are on Dario as a character. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that George writing, if there ever was a man that could rape a woman with his eyes, is endearing me any more to the character. But it may just be that I mislike that phrasing. The way Danny follows up that she is guilty of it too, but in a more flirty, crushy kind of way, makes the wording around Dario seem even stranger to me. I think George is trying to convey an inherent danger in Dario and in loving Dario, which I think he more effectively communicates with the comparison to Khal Drogo, even if the call also has some problems in that regard. And George does expand on this in A Dance with Dragons, that Dario stands in for war and woe, Danny's desire for the things her rational mind rejects. As we'll see in her next chapter, Danny feels increasingly split between her head and her heart, her public political persona, and her individual inner life. Does she want to win the Game of Thrones? Or does she want to be happy? And then there's the burden of prophecy to live up to. The dragon has three heads and all that. So maybe she should just marry both Jorah and Dario, she thinks. At least then she'll have to stop thinking about it all damn day. There is no resolution to these thoughts. As George writes, they just go round and round in Danny's head until she's exhausted. She tells herself that she should be focused on her duties rather than her desires. Not only does that not work, because telling yourself to just stop feeling your feelings never works, but her duties seem as impossible to achieve as her desires. The scorched earth tactic has worked. The slavers have taken advantage of Danny's sympathy for the former slaves, because now she's the one responsible for feeding them, and she has no way of doing so, other than taking the city as quickly as possible. And she can't do that because all the ways of taking the city require time that they don't have before everyone starves. George shows off Danny's developing leadership skills again and how she investigates every possibility. But each one dead ends. So what's she gonna do? George does a great job playing with the ambiguity here. On one hand, Jorah is right that Danny's ultimate goal is Westeros, that her dragons will be big enough to contribute to the war effort by the time she gets there, and that if she takes the freedmen with her, inevitably a lot of them are gonna starve along the way. On the other hand, George never lets you forget that Jorah himself sold people into slavery and doesn't seem to see anything wrong with it. He encouraged Danny to capture and sell people as slaves back in Book 1, and in a very telling slip in this scene, he refers to the freedmen following her as slaves. So while Jorah's right about the logistics of their current situation, it's also very clear that he wishes Danny had never started this crusade to begin with, and that he would like to forget all about it and move on to Westeros like it never happened. Again, great chapter for Danny's supporting cast, as everyone has their their distinct personality and point of view in this scene. Dario doesn't care about feeding people, he just wants to plunder the shit out of Marine. Brown Ben will suggest the sewers, but he would rather die than go back in himself. Danny's Dothraki bloodwriters say that the Miranese have proved themselves cowards, and true courage means finding someone worthy of fighting. All of which only adds to Danny's confusion and frustration. She knows what she wants to do, but she doesn't know how to do it and is increasingly worried that she has led thousands of people into a no-win scenario. That is how George complicates Danny's story going forward. The people and systems she's fighting remain unjust, evil. The ambiguity comes from how she deals with it, how she builds on it, which makes sense given all the historical precedents for this storyline, ranging from the Civil War and afterward era in the American South, to the USA's disastrous attempts at nation-building in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Danny takes a tour of her camps with Missande and Barristan, and once again we see that the Unsullied are just as well disciplined in making camp, drilling, and hygiene as they are actual combat. If war is 90% tedium and 10% terror, it helps to be extremely good at all the logistics and preparation that make up for that 90%. If the Unsullied are the picture of perfect discipline, then Danny's freedmen are anything but. Despite Barristan's best efforts to organize them into fighting regiments, their camp is complete chaos. The best she can offer them is the chance to be close to her, to touch her, which again invokes a sort of messianic complex that her touch is divine. Danny doesn't believe this based on her own internal narration, but it surely feeds the godhood in the eyes of her followers. But Danny is immortal, and she comes within an inch of her own doom thanks to a disguised Miro, who took the opposite disguise route of Barristan and sheared himself clean to avoid detection. Barristan gets to show how spry he is for his age, and a quick little action scene has the former Kingsguard commander thoroughly depans Miro. At first, this scene seems like just a rehash of, yeah, what we saw in Danny's last chapter, Outside Yunkai, that, that contrast between the, between the camps. George lulls you into thinking that, so it feels like Miro emerges out of a nightmare. The key is how quickly it happens. Danny barely glimpses him before he pulls her down, and George doesn't even tell us who it is at first, focusing instead on the blunt cruelty of both his actions and his dialogue. Then Danny recognizes him, and it's a great moment because Miro was a plot thread left dangling from the last chapter. But the first-time reader has almost certainly forgotten all about him because of the sheer amount of new people and places and problems in these Danny chapters. Even when we meet Brown Ben, which is where the first-time reader might go, oh yeah, what happened to the guy who used to have that job? Ben is talking all about Osnak Zopal, and we're focused on that. So there's a rush to the reveal here, and yet it's only the appetizer compared to the reveals <laughs> to come. Speaking of which, this is really Arston's coming out party as Barristan Selmy, Barristan the Bold, even before Jorah finally recognizes him. And George plays it perfectly. I love the description of him vaulting off the horse, the, the salt wind in his snowy hair. It's the exact opposite imagery of, of Miro with his, like, his peeling skin and his angry eyes. And you have the, just the reassuring image of Barristan. And it's so great that, that what finally exposes Arston isn't his barely fake name or his suspicious familiarity with the Targaryens. No, what gives Barristan away is that he just can't help being the most preposterous badass who ever lived. It's clearly the equivalent of Obi-Wan cutting off that guy's arm in Moss Eisley, only turned up to 11 in terms of the intensity. Barristan moves shockingly fast, and knocks aside Miro's blows with contempt, as George writes. Belwas and Osnak also move too quickly for Danny to follow, but both of them had edged weapons, whereas Arston has a staff, because, you know, you would not part an old man from his walking stick. <laughs> George is calling back to Sirio Pharrell's last stand here. He would have won that fight against Marin Trant if it weren't for Trant's armor. So here we see what that would have looked like, as speed and skill overcome raw strength. I like coming back to moments like this on reread, and seeing how George keeps his audience right where he wants us. As soon as Jorah hears what happened, he realizes that this doesn't make any sense. Arston has been framing himself as a mere squire, someone who came along in service to Strong Belwas, Danny's actual bodyguard. Danny brought Arston along to the camps because she thought there was no chance of needing actual protection, so let's just take the old guy with the stick. And now, not only did he kill a much younger, taller, and stronger guy, but he did so with that stick against a sword. And seemingly he didn't even break a sweat. So why doesn't this immediately stand out to the reader the way it does to Jorah? George uses every trick to keep us from sniffing out the rat. First of all, we're just trying to catch our breath, along with Danny. Miro's attack was so unexpected and threatening that we're just relieved she's in one piece. 
Secondly, it's not actually Arston who kills Mira, which is something I'd forgotten, that the freedmen take charge at the end, killing him on Danny's behalf. Maybe most importantly, Arston actually apologizes to Danny for allowing Miro to get as close as he did. If you stop to think about that for a second, it's pretty revealing. It's the kind of thing an experienced bodyguard says, not a squire. But in the moment, when Arston describes himself as old and lax and shamed, the effect is to downplay his out-of-nowhere badassery. So the reader isn't asking any questions, which primes us to have our minds blown all over again when they get back to camp. So yeah, this gets us to the chapter's great big revelations, that Arson is in fact Selmy, and that Jorah has been spying on Daenerys for the crown, the latter being a reveal more so for Daenerys and less so the reader. The Barristan one comes first, which, thank God, the mummer's farce <laughs> is over, and Arson Whitebeard can be retired. R.I.P., I guess. <laughs> Barristan says he's told no falsehoods, though he's been selective about the truth. He fills us in further on his adventures since Joffrey defrocked him of his white cloak. There's power in a name, someone once said, and Barrison was keen to keep his hidden while the Lannisters hunted for him among Joffrey's rivals. He does seem contrite of his service to Robert, though that contrition seems geared more towards the men he served with. He takes a shot at the Kingslayer here for soiling the cloak that he wore, but never really saying anything about the crimes of Robert or the Mad King he silently endured. Of course, as he's begging for his life, he might not want to bring those up at just this moment to the father of Daenerys, or to Daenerys, whose fathers committed the crimes. Ultimately, it is Barristan who reveals Jorah's treachery as well, even if Jorah had abandoned his role as informant a year or so ago. Jorah tries to pro- proclaim his love for Daenerys, which is the exact last thing she wants to hear, just as little as she wants to hear about how Jorah desired a pardon to go home, the very same boon D- Danny was offering him. All this results in Danny waking the dragon within her and sending her two trusted knights into the shit. In a way, Danny's story has been building to this moment. Her most direct engagement with Westeros, the world she was forced to leave behind at birth. As it turns out, it's really painful. There are no positive associations for her to make because of how things ended for her family. Here's Barristan Selmy, lifelong Targaryen fanboy. He was Rhaegar's friend, as Danny thinks. He knows more about her family than she does. Except for the inconvenient little detail that Barristan is only still alive because he bent the knee to Robert Baratheon, aka the Usurper. So she can't feel any joy about finding a connection to her past, because in the moment, Barristan is just another reminder of everything she's lost. And Barristan knows it. As we'll see in Danny's next chapter, Barristan wins her over where Jorah fails to. Because now that the lie has been exposed, Barristan commits himself to honesty, and she likes that. Unlike Jorah, he doesn't talk around what he's done, try to justify it. He confesses to serving Robert, who's serving alongside the Kingslayer. Now as you say, the reader is not likely to see these as Barristan's unforgivable crimes, especially now that we know why Jaime killed Aerys. More relevant, I think, is what Barristan says next. He would still be serving Joffrey if he hadn't been fired. Joffrey is as blatantly unworthy of power as Eris was, and Barristan was right there when Cersei tore up Robert's will. He was even shocked by it, those were the king's words, but ultimately does nothing. Barristan easily turns the tables on Jorah here. When Jorah frames Barristan as a traitor for serving Robert, that's how he describes Barristan, Barristan points out that Jorah actively fought for Robert against Rhaegar on the Trident, unlike Barristan. Then Barristan drops the bomb. He only came in disguise because he was worried that Jorah would rat him out to the Lannisters, as Jorah has been spying on Danny from the start. This is where it all gets very personal for her. Up to this point, as George writes, Danny was more confused than angry, because if Barristan really was a traitor to the Targaryens, 
Why did he bother saving her life just now? But Jorah? Jorah has been the most important person in Danny's life since the day Cal Drogo fell from his horse. She's relied on him when she could rely on no one else. He has kept her from feeling all alone in the world. His betrayal hurts way more than Barristan's, because now those memories, those moments, all that love, as he barely brings himself to say, is tainted. She can't trust him. But more than that, she can't trust her own feelings, her own story. And yet, even as Jorah's treachery is exposed, George gives him arguably his most sympathetic moment. Varus said, I might go home. Jorah is also in exile. And in a way, his situation is worse, because unlike Danny, he can actually remember Westeros. He knows what he's lost. Of course, Jorah's exile, unlike Danny's, is also a direct result of his own actions. <laughs> but in this moment, I can still feel his desperation to get back to Bear Island, his willingness to do anything to be allowed back home. Danny thought that exile was something she had in common with Jorah, something that bonded them together. I was going to take you home, she thinks. We were going to go home together, felt that relief, that sense of peace together. Instead, it's driven them apart. Danny feels more exiled than ever as her links to home have been corrupted. It's such an emotional scene. Which means the first-time reader is almost definitely going to overlook how George sets up what happens next in plain sight. He even has Danny mention the sewers in that last paragraph, just to demonstrate that he's playing fair, but it still hits the first time you read her next chapter and find out how she got into Marine. So, uh, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, Jorah says that by the time they reach Westeros, Danny's dragons will have grown big enough to take castles with fire, which... True, definitely true. Even without the show as a precedent, we can say that's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see what the plan is for managing that in terms of will Danny still have to lay siege anywhere? Will she throw her dragons at everything? Will there be obstacles like in the show that kind of prevent her from using them all the time? You know, we'll see. But Jorah's George, definitely right that that'll make things like siege towers a lot less necessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of those things where if like Danny's army gets slowed down at all, it's actually a boon to her dragon. Her air force just levels <laughs> up the longer it takes. So maybe it does make sense to kind of grind it out on the uh, plains of Essos and level up her dragons a little bit before heading to Westeros. <laughs> the video game structure is very strong with Danny's story in very that way. So. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so moving on to theory and discussion, mentioned it in passing in the synopsis, there's this great little scene where Brown Ben talks about his Targaryen ancestry and says specifically he's descended from Lord Ossifer Plum, who married a princess and supposedly had a cock six feet long. Now, sorry to disappoint anyone, but six feet long cocks are not a thing in reality. That's nor are they a thing in Westeros. Uh, this is, if you put the pieces together, the, the, the six foot cock story is, is, is actually, what it's actually talking about is death, not to destroy everyone's good time. But, uh, so, so what happened was the, the Aegon in question, uh, is, is Aegon the fourth, uh, the unworthy one, the worst Aegon. And, uh, his cousin Elena got married to Ossifer Plum, who's a much older lord. And Ossifer, Ossifer died, uh, apparently while consummating their new marriage. The, the rumor was that it just, the sight of his beautiful wife naked for the first time just gave him a heart attack. And, uh, and uh, despite that fact, Elena immediately became pregnant. And, uh, Ossifer supposedly fathered the child after he was dead. That was the cover story. And that led to the idea that he's a six foot cock, that his cock is so long, he managed to impregnate someone from the grave. Uh, the reality being, in all likelihood, that it was actually Elena's cousin, Egon IV, who fathered that kid. And that's why when Tyrion is hearing about Brown Ben's story and a dance with dragons, uh, he thinks to himself, you know, you have, you have two drops, two drops of dragon blood. Because in all likelihood, both those ancestors were Targaryens. Uh, fun little game to play following uh, Ben's story all around. I was curious why you, th why you think that's there. Is that just George kind of playing around with his audience? Is that supposed to be telling us something about dragon blood in general? What, why do you think this is in here? 
Uh, well, I mean, it does add more fuckery to the Targaryen family tree, and we know how much George <laughs> likes that. Uh, we need another dragon seed in there, absolutely. It is interesting, because on top of this part of Brown Ben Plum's descent, he's also a mix of, like, eight different other heritage, supposedly, through his mother's side, who is Dothraki, and I think his grandmother was, like, Ibanese and half Kohoric, and... Um, it's like a real like pastiche of every culture in Essos. Um, not ones we necessarily closely associate with the freehold, but you know they would definitely like absorb absorb some of the diaspora as well. That's so you're true. figuring that he has direct Targaryen descent blood, um, as well as maybe just some kind of like nascent <laughs> Valerian blood, maybe just from his <laughs> associate uh, like heritage. Um, I do think it is kind of interesting because it does feel like more so than other people, because the dragons do kind of like other people that we assume do not have dragon's blood, but they like really seem to like Brown Ben Plum. So whether that's going to have any effect in terms of how the dragons are going to react with, you know, what's going to happen in Marine because there's going to be a dragon horn in play. Daenerys might be coming back. Um, there's a lot of forces that might be pulling at the dragons. And I wonder if Brown Ben Plum gets involved with that somehow. It's interesting when you think about, like, yeah, what, what makes dragons like people? What draws them in? Because uh, it's, it's clearly not just dragon blood. Because if that was the case, why wouldn't they like Quentin? Like, uh, House Martell has dragon blood Targaryen families more recently than House Plum. And Quentin's uh, ancestry is a lot less all over the place than <laughs> Bron Ben. So why, why, do, why do the dragons, to say the least, not like Quentin Martell? So maybe it's, it's in part... Your personality, like Quentin was afraid of the dragons, thought they were going to kill him and they could tell. And like many animals, you know, know when you're afraid and it becomes kind of self-fulfilling, like they, they seize on that. Whereas Ben is just not afraid of the dragons at all. And maybe they kind of like him for that. I think it's also interesting in context with what we see of Tyrion's Winds of Winter chapters that he is going to get Brown Ben back on Danny's side as Brown Ben changes sides for like the thousandth time in the series. So maybe the dragons are sensing... No matter what Ben does back and forth, he's really on your side at the end of the day. Maybe they sense that about him. Like, unlike Jorah, for example, like, this guy will actually end up loyal to you. Maybe they sense that. Because, like, you see that with the direwolves. Like, they like Sam because mm -hmm. they can tell that even though Sam's not a Stark, oh, he's on our side. He's our boy. And you also wonder, you know, we talk about the dragon having three heads and who Daenerys's, you know, two dragon riders will be alongside of her. And we mostly think about who those final dragon riders will be. But there's no, you know, rule that says there can't be some like tryouts. And, you know, maybe Brown Bam Plum takes a stab at it and doesn't work out. Or maybe it does for a while. Who knows? So I hope if he tries it, it does work out because it would be very sad <laughs> to see him reduced to ash and bone. Like uh, there are yeah, there's all those, those people who try it on Dragonstone. Uh, in the House of the Dragon era, and that doesn't end well. So we'll see. Maybe that's maybe that's coming for Brown Ben. So that is going to uh, wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, a Daenerys Five. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or Blue Sky. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob on Twitter and Blue Sky. You can find our coverage of The Lord of the Rings, starting with Return of the King, over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, just as Emmett is wrapping up Return of the King. Yes, and indeed. And I do have to uh, plug his episode on The Scouring of the Shire <laughs> is fantastic. Well, thank it's you, sir. His favorite chapter, and it was probably my favorite uh, episode of The Lord of the Rings coverage. I think all his love came through in it, so you guys should go definitely check it out. Thank you for saying so, sir. I had a good time with that one. Yes, that's out for all of our $5 and above patrons. 
Uh, book 6, Chapter 8 of The Lord of the Rings, The Scouring of the Shire, my favorite chapter. Check it out if you haven't already. Uh, my next Star Wars episode for patrons will be out next week, covering our uh, introduction to the Death Star, or at least our, our main introduction uh, into the Death Star, you know, getting on board to heist away a princess in the original movie. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, we're going to be kicking off the Purple Wedding. June was Red Wedding Month here on the Nauticast. October has, has worked out to be the Purple Wedding Month. And we're going to be kicking that off with two chapters at once, A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7, and Sansa 4, both of which are short chapters, good but short, kind of uh, appetizers for the main course of Tyrion 8, where Joffrey actually dies. So we're going to be doing those two chapters together in a single episode, uh, like we've done with some shorter chapters before. It somehow feels appropriate for a spooky season to be covering the Purple Wedding. It's like murder mystery, you know, it's just perfect for the season. I'm imagining like Olena Terrell telling the story around a campfire and the killer all along was me! And all the kids get up and scream and run into the woods. And then Olena gets all their marshmallows. It's perfect. So thank you again for listening and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 7, and Sansa 4. 